to tree. All right. All right, everybody. So we're in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter three. We're going through chapter four. So 3.16 through 4.16. I want to say this before we jump in. Um, this coming Saturday, I just, I'm going to be there. I want to invite all the men. We're going to have a men's breakfast here there's a few people, I know Dave Johnson and Steve Hansen and Scott Moran, they're gonna be sharing during that, but let's foster some community as men that's at 8.30 on this coming Saturday. And so, and let's eat together some more. Football, food trucks, breakfast. Okay, um, okay. as I've researched this passage, there is a, a theologian, Ian Proven, he wrote this line that had just stuck with my soul, and the line is this, the world as a place of striving is a place of tears. The world as a place of striving is a place of tears. And last week, I'm not gonna redo what I did last week, so if you weren't here, watch it, um, because some of this may not fully make sense, but I drew basically two wonderful pictures. The first one was this, it was of a line, because I'm awesome. Um, and the line is, represents this up and to the right posture that, that we or, or attitude or mindset or drive that we as, as human beings. We, we naturally believe that when we're born, we want to take a journey. We want our life to mean something. And it's gonna have all sorts of peaks and valleys along the way, but we want it to go in that direction, up and to the right. This idea of progressing, this idea of evolving, this idea of moving into the future and my life becoming something. But what we know in scripture, Psalms 139, your, your life is something straight from the womb, in the womb. Your life is something. Um, God created you beautifully and wonderfully made and invites you to be a child to take on that identity. Yet still in this world, there's this striving. And, and this is a human experience across all time, across all cultures. And then Ian says this, the world as a place of striving is a place of tears. So hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a moment. For those of you, uh, a reminder, a refresher, or to bring some up to speed. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a character in the book. It may or may not be the author. The character in, in the translation we're using, the NIV, is the teacher. The character it sometimes is translated the preacher, or, uh, but in the Hebrew, it's Kohelet. Everybody say Kohelet. And the word means a gather, a, a, a gather, or a one who puts together an assembly. And, and sometimes you can think teacher or preacher. I like to think like philosopher or professor or some of those words. Eugene Peterson calls him the divine garbage collector. Uh, because this, and I read it last week, so I won't go into all of it, but this idea that the, the book of Ecclesiastes, this Kohelet, this, this teacher, um, he's, his goal isn't necessarily even morality. He's not a moralist. His goal isn't to name what's right. His goal is to name what's real. And in this book that has a, some cynicism through it, as we'll talk about in a moment, he names some things that are uncomfortably real. And in doing so, this book, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has the, has the power to reach into our soul. Into the, it's like if our body was a, a home. You know how things just get stored up in your attic or in your garage or in, 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 in there's this time, usually in the spring where we go into spring cleaning or when you move, you're like, why do I have all of this stuff? It doesn't mean anything anymore. And that's what the Kohelet's doing, reaching deep into those places, inviting us to let those things that have attached to our lives that really don't matter in the end, 
those things that get in the way of our relationship with God and relationship with each other to begin to declutter our souls in a way. And so that's how he, Eugene Peterson puts it. And, and we can't, I mentioned last week, we can't understand the message without understanding his method. And so this is not a lecture about truth. This Kohelet is taking us on a journey to actually ask better questions so that you in the context of your life can get to truth yourself. And, and then the second, second method that he uses here is um, what I like to call a one-man show. And maybe you've been to a play where there's a, a one-man or a one-woman show, one person who plays multiple characters. And, in, and the reason why this book can be sometimes so confusing is you'll read one sentence and you'll be like, this is a faithful follower of God. And then you read the next sentence and it's like he changed worldviews. Now he's a secularist that believes that the only thing that exists are things underneath the sun. No, no, no God, um, no eternal perspective. And that's actually what's happening here. This Kohelet will switch characters as we go through the book and actually even switch worldviews, playing the devil's advocate in some ways to get us to see something, to get us to ask better questions. And so with that in mind, how I'm gonna... Jump through or walk through the scriptures today is going to drive some of you crazy because it's a chapter and a half, and it starts at ver, uh, chapter three, verse sixteen, and goes through chapter four, the whole chapter to verse sixteen. I'm not going to go through it in sequential order, and you'll see why in a moment. We're actually going to jump around. We're going to go to a central spot, and we're going to spider web out. It'll drive some of you crazy, but it'll just give you more to look into when you get home. Because I love you. And I know that you read this stuff during the week, right? So good. Hey. Um, all right. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Um, and here's, here's what it says. He said, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and will return to, and, and to dust, all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upwards and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And you can hear the cynicism in that last portion. And I saw there's nothing better than a person to just enjoy your lot. So go ahead and go ahead and get out there and enjoy your lot. And you can feel the intensity of this passage. I can feel the intensity of this passage. This is what I, as I was looking at this, I felt very humbled, uh, like it's a divine humbling. This idea that he points out in our most natural state, we're like animals. Our bodies come from and go to the same place. Maybe you've heard before, uh, dust to dust. Uh, in a sense, and so you can kind of see the role that he's playing, and he reintroduces us to this idea of Hevel. Um, 
this idea of hevel, that's the Hebrew word for the word meaningless here. And sometimes we think about the idea of hevel as just one word, meaningless, it means one thing. It means that that is meaningless. But the word hevel is not just one word that means just one thing. In fact, it's a metaphor. And this word can mean vapor or smoke. A little bit of review for you, vapor or smoke. And the idea of Hevel being vapor or smoke means that just like the Kohelet moves through Ecclesiastes and you see him change worldviews once in a while as he goes, now we know that at the core, his actual worldview is God-fearing, faith-filled person. But um, as he's playing these parts and going back and forth, this metaphor has that kind of elastic as well. It means different things in different parts of the scripture. And so, for example, I got my candle here, and, and if it does mean smoke, one thing that we know about smoke is this, is that smoke is there, and then, and then it's like, it's like, it's really there. You guys, it's, the smoke is really there. And now it's gone. And here, here's what came to my mind. A um, hundred years from now, 2023, 20, all of us will be buried with our family and friends. Um, strangers will live in our home. Our possessions will be thrown away. Many of them will be in maybe even antique stores. I've, I have no idea. It's a, it's a weird thought. That car that uh, we paid too much for will be uh, scrap, scrap metal. Um, and our descendants uh, won't, many of them won't know us outside of maybe some cool old photos. Actually, we'll have like libraries of digital photos, so maybe they'll feel like they know us. Uh, and Open Door will have its 175th year anniversary, um, which is funny, interesting to think about, isn't it? Because it'll be a totally different group of people if this building's here in this way in this room. And it's just so fascinating to think about. Um, and, and, and if, and as I think about just the, the vapor of life, that it's here and that it's gone, um, this, this metaphor that we see through the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it begins to address our worry. These things that won't matter even a year from now take up so much time in our mind and heart. Things that don't matter five years from now take up so much time. And if we really look at it through this perspective, it can set us free and we see this metaphor through. But we don't just see that metaphor. There's something else regarding smoke. One thing we know about smoke as well is that it actually looks very tangible. Um, in fact, you can see it and it looks like you can grab it. But you can't actually grab it. You can't actually Grab it and control it and make it do what you want. And the book of Ecclesiastes deals with control quite a bit. Not only can this mean that your life is here and then it's gone, but it can also mean that life is beyond our control. I think about when Stephanie and I were first uh, married. In fact, the first five years of our marriage, we lost a baby. And, and we almost lost her in that process. And, and I, I was, as a husband... And as a father um, of this baby in her womb, I was scared. What if, like this wasn't in the plan. This wasn't in the plan for the first five years of our marriage. 
I mean, I, you know, I said it before, if you've raised kids or even have somebody that you've mentored or walked with, at some point, people are gonna make decisions regardless of how you've tried to curate their life. It's beyond our control. Our economy shows us when we invest or, or buy homes or things like that, it's beyond our control. Sometimes what happens, and, and we can have this sense of control, we can play it as smart we can play it as smart as we can. And just like last week and in the beginning of chapter three, there's this idea that we're, we're gonna play life as smart as we can up into, up into the right. We want life to move that way. And, 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 and what this book calls out is that life doesn't move progressively. It moves in seasons. It moves like this. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to love. There's a time to hate. There's a time to give. There's a time to, and you just, you, you read through that poem in Ecclesiastes and you realize that, that life is circular like this and God has placed us, God up here has placed us right in the middle of this seasonal reality of life. This is where we live and it doesn't matter how much we've been able to control to some degree, eventually our control is gonna give out as it hits the season that comes. And eventually a season's gonna come where th this age, this life, as scripture talks about, this age is done. And in, in, in this life, while we're wa walking through this life, there's this thing called hevel that we will continue to face over and over and over again. And I'm not trying to depress you, but I am trying to bring you into this book, and there is hope, and we'll get to there. But first, um, the Kohelis question is, what is real? What is real? This is real. This is real life. There is hope. Yes, there is salvation. Yes, there is faith, but there's also hevel. There's also things that happen. I look at it like this. I look at the word hevel, this, this idea of meaninglessness. Uh, I look at that as an ankle biter dog. Anybody have a small dog that bites your ankles? Anybody? Uh, that, that kind of follow you around? I look at hevel as that thing that follows you around and reminds you of this. You know that saying, everything happens for a reason? That little ankle biter dog called hevel follows you around and reminds you that that, that saying is crap. It's, it's not actually true. In fact, there are some things that, that there, there is no reason that fits into my brain that that happened. And here's why I wanna point this reality out on, on this earth, that we will have a portion of hevel in our life, a portion of things that we cannot assign a good meaning to. Can God redeem? Yes, God can redeem, but why did that happen? I have no idea. I can't figure it out. It's hevel. It's, and hevel's not necessarily a bad word. It means a paradox. It means an enigma. That it's, it's just something that we can't make sense of, that we can't grab a hold of and manipulate, that we can't put a definition to. It's hevel. And, and the reason why I bring this up, and it matters that we're honest about this, because there are certain versions of Christianity that can create illusions that Jesus is a quick fix for all the meaningless crap in life. Jesus can just fix it for you. And, and I wanna encourage you to actually beware of Christian cultures that are four steps to getting rid of doubt. Like what happens when you do the four steps and you're still feeling doubt? I'm broken. As if, as if there is an equation that can reach into the human soul and fix everything. Hevel. We gotta be honest about that. And then 
we move on. And this is what I would say is the central. Um, so I'd say there, sometimes there's Hebel. There's no easy answers. And then the, what I would say is the central verse to this passage that we're going to look at today is chapter 4, verse 4. And here's what the Kohelet does. <laughs> I feel so uncomfortable in this teaching, by the way. I just want to point that out. Um, this Ecclesiastes doesn't come natural. And so the discomfort that you might be feeling, I do too, but there's a strange hope wrapped up in all of it. Um, the Kohelet calls out in verse four the ridiculous way we, and I say we, me included, we human beings can live in the hevel all around us. So if the seasons of life can have um, hevel built into it, we live within this in some strange ways. And, and he points it out in verse four, he says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless Chasing after the wind. We're actually, spoiler alert, we're not gonna make it all the way to verse 16 in chapter four, but if you read verse 13 through 16, the Kohelet talks about how advancement is meaningless. Trying to advance beyond the seasons of life, trying to control life that way, it's meaningless. And he uses um, a metaphor between about kings, ancient kings, to share that. So great homework for this week for you. Um, but in verse four, the beginning of it, it says, toil, there's a sense of we toil and strive for achievement. This is our basic posture in the hevel of life is striving. Now what I'm not talking about is I'm not talking about hard work. And I'll differentiate between the two as we go through this because hard work, actually working for the glory of God is a beautiful thing. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with accomplishment. That's not what it's saying here. The word striving really grabs it and we'll dig a little bit deeper in a second. Um, toil and striving for achievement, that is our basic posture as we live into some of the hevel that surrounds this world, as we live in the seasons of life. And, and remember, it's easy to buy into that illusion of up and to the right. And, and so we, what we do is we run around in the, in the sphere of our life and what we're doing while we're trying to, we're chasing meaning, we're chasing identity. We wanna figure out who we are. We wanna make our life count some way. And so we're trying to like, we're running here, we're running there. We're trying to have this upward mobility everywhere. We're trying, but we keep hitting these seasons and eventually this season comes where life is done, this life, and we do have eternal life in the age to come. But I'm talking about this life and all the big questions come to mind like, what's the point of all this striving? To live the American dream? To accumulate a lot for myself? To retire and have an awesome seashell collection? Like what, what is the point when we're done? What is, what is that which lasts beyond and these are tough questions to deal with. And they are questions the Bible addresses from cover to cover. And they're important questions to ask as the Kohelet begins to garbage collect in our life the things that don't matter in the end. Running around this sphere and if you're, and as if we aren't bound to seasons like everyone else. And here's what the Kohelet says, like living as if we're not bound to seasons, trying to find our meaning and worth in achievement trying to stack our identity on achievement or advancement. It's like chasing the wind. Here, I, I, it's my musings about wind. Um, I like wind generally, but it can be really bad too. Uh, but actually, a story just came to mind. I'm in, in our sun porch, and 
big windstorm came, and Jude and I are sit, we're watching something on the TV, and a tree blows down behind us, and we had a trampoline that just shot up into the air, and it, it went to the street in front of it. We thought we were in the Wizard of Oz. I thought we were gonna land somewhere special, but uh, we didn't. Um, wind can be destructive, but here's what's fascinating to me. With all the technology that controls the world around us, HVAC systems, cars get us from point A to point B, our phones control so much of our connections with people, our phones control our calendars and, and so many more things. And I mean, think about it. Like, we have control of the machines, you know. We had a refrigerator go down, but it, it's like, oh, when they don't work, it's frustrating because it's spo- you're supposed to keep my food cold. We figure out how to control most of the environments of our life, but so far as human beings with all of our advancements can go to the moon, we can't control the wind. We can harness the wind, we can't control the wind. And it's fascinating. Where would the wind take you if you chased it? Nowhere. Who knows where? I don't want to know where. And what he's saying is it's the same thing for striving for meaning and achievement and advancement. Yet we still do it. We accumulate trophies, but it's not, there's nothing wrong with trophies, but when our identity is wrapped up in this stuff, we accumulate anxiety and things that were, and trophies and things that become, in a sense, our God because we find our meaning in them, but they were never meant to carry the weight of God. So when, it, when the season changes, when, when we hurt our body and we can't play that sport anymore, when, when our, our boss lets us go and we found our meaning in the work that we did, now we don't have that work, when our stocks tank and, or, or when you, know, we, you buy a house and then 2008, have, whatever it is, like all of a sudden it attacks our identity, it attacks our worth because nothing was meant to carry the weight of God other than God. And so the invitation to worship, even like we're doing in song but with our lives, is one of the most loving things God could do. Why? Because God points us to the only thing to find our identity in that won't let us down. And the Kohelet's on this grand experiment inviting you into it of, of going everywhere, trying to find meaning in everything and showing us it all breaks down. It all breaks down. And so the Kohela identifies here in this verse, and it's, it's for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, the fuel that feeds the fires of our human striving. He says in the last part of that verse um, that we toil, that toil and all achievement spring from a person's envy of another. It actually comes from our envy of other human beings. Now, Neil Burton, um, a doctor, and this is an article in Psychology Today, he wrote this. In sum, envy is a personal pain caused by the desire for the advantages of others. In Old Money, Nelson Aldrich Jr. describes the pain of envy as the, mo- the, the almost frantic sense of emptiness inside oneself as if the pump of one's heart was sucking on air. Envy is mean and miserly, and arguably the most shameful of the deadly sins. Our envy is hardly ever confessed, often not even to ourselves. Envy is deeply ingrained in the human psyche and common to all times and people, to all times and people. Even our human psychology says this envy is a human experience. All times and all people. It's one of the oldest sins we read about in scripture in Genesis when Cain is murdering Abel out of 
out of envy. Um, and there is the uncivilized version of envy. The uncivilized version is a deep bitterness that cause you, causes us to do harm to other people. And then there is the civilized version, version of envy, which can look still like doing harm to other people through things like passive aggressiveness or other things. But you can also see envy play out in some civilized ways in our world um, that subtly influence the decisions we make and the way we feel every single day. Every single day, how we position ourselves in the eyes of others, how we dress or how we drive or what we post and, and often, and there's, there's a lot of beauty in those things. They're not all bad, like, uh, but if we're honest, you can peel back the layers and in some ways in many of those decisions, there is a trying to position ourselves in the eyes of people around us. And, and so we strive. And remember that line we started with, the world as a place of striving is a place of tears. Why? As we will see in the rest of this section, the Kohelet believes this about a life of striving. And this is sort of the thread that I'm pulling through this section of scripture here. This thread is this. A life of striving that flows from en envy is fundamentally anti-justice, anti-rest, and anti-neighbor. And of course, it's a spectrum. At its extreme, it's extremely unjust and and, and it's ex extremely fatigued, it's extreme. And there's, but there's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's not black and white. In this, from here, what we'll do is we'll spiderweb out to the rest of the passages from verse four uh, in chapter four, where it talks about the fuel that, that, that lights the fire of, of our striving, which is envy. Now we're gonna spiderweb out, and first we're gonna look at this, striving is anti-justice. How is it anti-justice? Here's what the Kohelet says. Are you, are you with me today? I know this is a strange way to go about this passage, and uh, if I had more time, I probably would have done it a different way, but here we are. Um, verse one through three in chapter four says this, and again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressor, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that has been done under the sun. Whew. That word oppression here in scripture, it means this. It means to extort or to exploit to get ahead. Now do you see it? Our, when our life is on a trajectory here, there is a subtle transition of other human beings inside our mind, except for maybe the human beings that are in the car with you on that upward mobility. But there is a, a way, and there, it's, it's hard, how do you escape it? When, when your life is all about advancement and achievement, all of a sudden, human beings around us transition um, from being to be becoming dehumanized as a means to our end, as a means to our advancement. I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the idea here, getting ahead, getting ahead. Everybody say getting ahead. It's the beginning poison here. This idea naturally, yeah, positions people as the means to our, to our end. 
And when people are the means to our end, to our pleasure or to our power or to our advancement, they are dehumanized. And when humans stop being human in our eyes, in in other humans' eyes, all sorts of injustices occur. There's blatant oppression like rape and abuse and things like that. There's, that's just so over, so disgusting, so evil. And then there's the, the subtle oppressive ways of how we treat our employees or fellow employees to get ahead as a means to my success. And here's what the Kohelet says in this passage, referring to people who are oppressed without a comforter. He says, better is the one who has not been born In my office, I have a a picture of a group of people in India. We'll bring that on the screen real quick if we we have it. Um, This picture I took in India, it's a well. um, Sweet friends of mine, Indian friends of mine, have a ministry there, and they train pastors, they plant churches, and they always dig a well wherever they plant churches, and they start an education center. If you're not familiar with India, India has a caste system, there's high caste, there's all these other castes, I mean, there's low caste, and you're born into it. According to the Hindu culture, like you're born into it because of the life you lived before. So whatever caste you're born into, you deserve for the rest of your life. So you can see how social justice really isn't a thing in the deepest of deep Hindu culture in India. And here, look at those kids' faces. This is the first fresh water that they have, those kids have ever seen. Because in some of these low caste areas, um, who, if you live in a culture that says you're getting what you deserve, why would you give them fresh water? So right across the street is a high caste village with a fresh water well that they're not allowed to take from. And so these churches are embedding themselves in the darkest of the dark places and bringing the life of Christ, but also bringing water and education and it's interesting to me, and, and the reason why I brought this up is because I saw it there. I saw this picture. This picture here is in, in my office. I saw it there, and, and I thought to myself, man, this village is, has, has a, there's nothing. There's no program on planet Earth that can reach into these dark places and bring hope. Uh, there, there's not. It's, the, it's God using his, partnering with the church is doing it. And it's so faith-building for me to see that and it's beautiful what this village is able to experience now. And there's many hundreds that are part of this ministry that my family and I have been connected to with years. But there's many more thousands that are still living without hope. And I, here, here's what came to my mind. Because it, it says in this verse, I saw the tears of the oppressed. And here's what came to my mind. What would it be like to see or hear the tears of all the oppressed in the world? And I thought what it must be like for God. I mean, to see a few tears is one thing. But to see them all, to hear them all. I can't imagine. And now I'm gonna bring this idea closer to home. In my, in my back of my Bible, I, I carry a, we get a care update every so often from our care team. Thank you, Bob and team. And these are, these are people in our church family that need prayer. These are people on the bottom who are suffering from long-term things. These are 
people who just request for family members, for themselves, all sorts of things, and I keep it, I keep an updated version in my Bible so I can pray with it throughout the week. There are people right in our church family. There's things that aren't written down there. And not all, not all suffering is connected to somebody directly oppressing somebody. There's sicknesses and things like that that can oppress our bodies. But, but it's something that we walk through. And I would say um, this, for me, is the weighty part of pastoring the weighty part of pastoring, yeah, it's weighty to, to preach and stuff like that, but the weighty part is really when you're in, in people's lives or you let people into your own, to my own suffering or my own pain. That's the weighty part because it's here. It's not just on the other side of the world. It's here. We may not have suffered the same things, but, but you've walked through some stuff. Some of you are walking through some stuff right now, and I know it. I know it. But I don't know everyone. For some, suffering may be just a word right now or oppression might be just a word, but for some of you, it feels like all of life, what you're facing right now, what you're battling right now, it feels really, really big. And in that, I wanna just name this. The great call of, the, of a disciple in this world, listen, is to humanize other people. We see it in Philippians chapter two, and here's what it says in this great call from the Apostle Paul to, to have the mindset of Christ. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what does it say here? It says, it says, looking out for the interest of others above your own. It doesn't actually say who, it doesn't say who, it doesn't say what others. It doesn't, it doesn't like, if, if somebody is less educated, if somebody has less wealth, if somebody is less liked, those categories don't exist in the kingdom of God. It just says, like, look out for the interests of others above yourself. In other words, the shift is this, that instead of people becoming a means to my end, in the kingdom of God, the invitation to the disciple is to be the means for other people's flourishing. To, to actually, I may not die on a cross physically, but the invitation in scripture is that I, that you, that we would lay down our life for each other. And any upward mobility I have in the world's eyes, it's not for me. My identity is not attached to it. It is for the sake of God's kingdom advancement and the flourishing of the people that he loves. We see that vision in scripture. You still with me, church family? All right. So many, we may not be able to magically end people's suffering, but we can perpetuate this culture of heaven here on earth. Um, and so in that, we're gonna rewind a little bit because in verse three, 16 through 17, here's what it says. It says, uh, and I'm not gonna read it, um, but I'm just going to summarize it. It says, in this world, even in the place of justice, even in the courts of this world, there's wickedness. Even in the, even in the most just place, the best we can do as human beings, there's still wickedness. And then here's what it says. It says, God is going to judge every deed. And, and when it says that, there's a sense you're reading it and you're like, God's gonna judge every deed and it can feel scary. You can have images in your mind of thunderbolts. Um, but actually, when the Bible talks about ju the judgment of God, 
it's talking about what we long for the most. We want the judgment of God. Let me explain it. Let me explain it this way. It sounds scary, but it's what we long for. Jesus is the Lord of all creation, the Christ King who God raised from the dead and set at the right hand of the universe will one day return and put the world to rights and will judge the wicked and the righteous. He will eradicate every trace of evil from our bodies, from our minds and from our souls to set us free and in our society and Jesus will reign forever. And we get to enter his rule and reign right now if we want to by surrendering to Jesus one daily death or decision of yielding at a time, including our desperate need to achieve and find meaning. We can lay it, we can lay it down. And the second part of this is not that just that striving is anti-justice, it's also anti-rest. And in Verse five, four, chapter four, verse five through six, it says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And here the Kohelet highlights the danger of striving by highlighting the ruin of what he calls lazy fools in a way. He says it like this. He says, at least the fool has some rest. You who are working hard have no rest. You've accomplished a lot, but you can't even enjoy it. You can see him playing the devil's advocate on both sides here. I had um, an old friend called me when I was first a youth pastor in my early 20s in a small town in Michigan. Um, there was this junior high kid named Jeff who I loved. Like he was, he was all in. And now he's the associate pastor of that church. And he called me. And he, uh, he wanted Stephanie and I to make a video because they're doing some new things and they, they're exploring their heritage and seasons of the church. Uh, and they want us to make a video and, and send it. And he said, Dave, there are so many students from the youth group who are raising their families in the church. And it just really blessed me. But here's what's interesting. Underneath the beautiful facade of that, um, and it was, it was a beautiful season. I'm in my early 20s. I remember some of the stuff that was in my heart and that still lingers in my heart today. Um, in fact, that was a, not a very restful season in my life. Any, like for me, I'm married, have children. I look back to when I didn't. I'm like, what did I do with my time? <laughs> I was so exhausted then. But there was this sense that I had deeply ingrained in me, and I won't go into detail uh, why, uh, but there's a story behind it. Like, I was trying to prove, prove myself. And, and you know, it's, it's a working so hard in the ministry, and the church was applauding, and it was interesting. The church didn't know they were doing this, but they were applauding this hard work that was being born from brokenness inside of me, trying to find my meaning, trying to find my worth in accomplishing something. And, it, and, it robbed, and one of the things that set me free throughout the years is this idea of Sabbath. Um, and Sabbath, I'm just gonna say it like this, it is worship. It is, and it is hard. It's still hard to figure out. The seasons of life change, and we gotta retool how we think about Sabbath. Um, and it is, it is not supposed to master us, but be a gift to us. But the idea is this, one day in seven, we're letting go. We're letting go, and we're just declaring, you're Lord of my life. I forgot it at some point this week. I remember it now. I, don't, I can let go. 
And so this idea of why it's so hard in our culture, and it is hard to Sabbath, you know, that we, we can't let go of one day in seven. Why not? It's not about our schedule. It's about our heart, this striving. And I'm not trying to create a guilt trip for you to do Sabbath. It's like, like the opposite motivation to do Sabbath. But this invitation to find freedom. And guys, I am still on the journey of working it out. And I am now more content than I've ever been with the fact that I'm going to be incomplete until one day I'm complete in Christ. But my character, I'm still growing and still maturing and still in the struggle with you, amen? And then the last one is this. Striving is anti-neighbor. And we're just, and then we'll end here. Verse four, seven through nine says, again, I say something, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. This is referring to a driven person toiling endlessly with their eyes fixed on some unspecified but all-absorbing thing other than God. In other words, the more driven to achieve and advance, the lonelier we become. And we know that we, it, we know that, yet some, it says, yet we still, yet we still strive. And like I said before, in a world of striving is a world of tears. Um, Ian Proven said this, the life of striving is fundamentally anti-neighbor. The point of life, when viewed from this perspective, is to get ahead of one's neighbor rather than participate in community with one's neighbor. And so that said, the Kohelet shows us in this last portion of scripture the power of community in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And you might be familiar with this passage. And here's what it says. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, but a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We are hardwired for community. And in in 2007, there was this book that Chris Hitchens wrote, and it was called this, God is Not Great, subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. <laughs> and in this book, what he didn't realize, there were studies that were happening over the course of decades up to this time. And so different people pushed back. One was a Harvard professor. His name is Tyler Vandier Wheel. And uh, he's an expert in this subject, and he pushed back. And he actually showed, and this is fascinating to me, yes, there's all sorts of distorted aspects of of Christian community that are out there uh, for sure. But in a general sense, statistically, going to church, and I'm using this, this is the word he used, going to a church gathering at least once a week is like drinking a magical medicine, he said. Um, And I know that sounds strange, but I'm just gonna read um, some of the stats from this book. For most Americans, the extent of reducing mortality rate is 20 to 30% over a 15-year period in this research. And in, in this, um, I'll just read it. 
He says, research suggests that those who, are regular, who regularly gather with the church are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, and less likely to commit suicide, have greater purpose in life, and are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. I'm actually not saying that to pat ourselves on the back. I'm reading these stats, and I'm, I'm telling myself we were created for biblical community. Not a distorted version, but for biblical community. And, in this, and so in this, this idea that the world is a place of striving is a place of tears, here's what I wanna, in fact, here's what I'll do. I'm gonna invite us, I'm gonna end the message with us standing, and we're gonna go into communion today. So worship team, you can come up. Let's all stand together. And I'll invite us into this last part. And if I could have some help, Bob, could you take my shenanigans down? Thank you so much. I just, so much stuff. This is for Spencer, actually. Yeah. We will experience many miracles along the way, no doubt, even healing. But the Bible is clear about the hevel and suffering that we will endure for a time. In this world of striving, the invitation today is to surrender our striving for meaning a little bit more so that we can love others, but also so that we can be seen and loved ourselves. Because though we will walk through all sorts of pain and, and hevel in this world, we do not have to walk alone. We don't have to walk alone. So those of you who are serving communion, you can come get in place. And um, I just wanna read we're gonna, you're gonna hear this a little bit later. I heard the worship team reading this during rehearsal earlier this week, and it's just beautiful, and it frames the table. The cracker representing the body of Jesus that was broken for us, for our healing. The juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can find our identity in the love of God instead of the stuff in this world. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. This invitation to the table says, you're not alone in this room, we have each other, but you also have the very presence of God with you. And so Jesus, we just pause right now and we, I just confess my desire to wrap this up in a nice package. Um, no, will you meet us in the beauty of our lives right now and in the messiness? Will you show us our, your presence? Will you, will you show us how much you love us? Will you connect our hearts with the other people in this room, the family of God? Will you breathe your life into this room? Will you release us from finding our meaning and purpose and achievement in this world to finding our identity in you as we receive from your table? In Jesus' name, amen.